I love to hear you guys sing. Oh, my word. You guys sound amazing. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for singing that song as a cry, as a, as a prayer to God. Uh, today, what we're talking about is this idea of the guardrails in our lives that can keep us from the pain, the destruction, sometimes that messing up the area of sex in our lives can lead us to. It's interesting that Christianity and the Bible, they often get <clears throat> accused of having this narrow-minded, old-fashioned view of sex, that, that it's just out of date, as if somehow today um, we've got it figured out, like through the help of Desperate Housewives, uh, the Real Housewives of Maricopa, um, Jersey Shore, 16 and Pregnant, we figured out, we know what it's like and how to navigate. If the Bible is out of date, <clears throat> I'm sorry, my throat is bad, so pray for it, that, that it will work. <clears throat> but what we're going to see is that God has a way of doing things, orchestrating, creating, that is not to restrict us, not to hold us in bondage, but to set us free, to allow us to enjoy and live how he created us to do just that. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you got one of these Bibles from the back, the story of God, it's on page 794. But what we're going to see is Paul's view of, of sexuality and what he's teaching and instructing the church here at Corinth is a revolutionary view of sex. It is a countercultural view that, that he's challenging them to believe. He's challenging them as, as followers of Christ to accept and to integrate, to, to center their lives around who Christ is and what he is doing in them, specifically in this area as we see today. You see, there were slogans around Corinth, slogans that sort of described their uh, philosophy, their cultural views on sex. They, they had a couple of slogans that Paul actually quotes uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13, uh, he, there's a slogan that they have. It's like our slogans that we have. We have, if it feels good, then do it. We, we, have, we have slogans that are like friends with benefits. We're just hooking up. Where it's okay to look, just don't touch. These are some philosophies of our culture. Here's a couple of philosophies of their day. Verse 13, it's in quotation marks. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was a slogan, a philosophy of the day, and it's in this passage dealing with sexuality, and, and basically what it meant was food is for the stomach in this sense. If you're hungry, then what should you do? Eat something. And they said in the same way, if you want sex, what should you do? Get sex. So in the city of Corinth, they had a temple. In that temple, or temples, in the temples, they had prostitutes. So part of the religion of Corinth, the debased and defiled religion of Corinth, was you would go to worship at the temple with the temple prostitutes. And it's just, hey, if it feels good, do it. Hey, food for the stomach, stomach for food. If you want sex, have it. So there was this extreme view that the church in Corinth found itself in. Even in chapter 5, just before this chapter, Paul calls out the church for a case of incest. And he said, you're allowing something to go on in your church that even the culture around you condemns. And he gets on to them. Why would you do that? On the other hand, there's a, a saying in chapter 7, verse 1. 
And it and it's literally uh, says this, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was a slogan that they had. Basically, it was this, this idea of sex is dirty. And the only reason that sex exists is to have babies. And so the extreme ultimate view or opposing view of that one was this, of saying sex is dirty, it's, it's really just there for procreation. Other than that, don't talk about it, don't think about it, don't do it. So Paul comes into the midst of this culture and he looks at what they're talking about and he says, wrong, wrong. You're, both spectrums are missing it. Both spectrums are messing it up. And so Paul comes and tries to remind them what they have been told throughout Scripture and remind them again. Here, here's what God has to say about this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, read the first part of verse 18. It says this. Flee from sexual immorality. So let's define our terms. Sexual immorality is a Greek word, and the Greek word is this, porneia. Porneia. It's where we obviously get our English word pornography from. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. It's, it's most often referring to this. It's a broad term. Any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage is porneia. If he wanted to use and address the issue of adultery, he had Greek words he could use specifically for adultery. This is a broader term referring to any kind of sexual activity outside of the relationship of a husband and wife. That's what he's talking about. And he says this is what you should do with sexual immorality. Anytime sexual immorality is around, this, there's one thing you should do. Run. Flee from it. He has this word, it's an imperative, it's a command. Not many times in this passage does Paul give a command, but this is what he says. You need to flee. You need to make it a habit of fleeing. Keep on fleeing. Have nothing to do with it. Paul doesn't say, try and be strong. Try and fight the temptation. He doesn't say, when you're sleeping over at your boyfriend's house, if you're tempted, pray and read scripture and hopefully you won't be tempted anymore. He says, run. Put your shoes on, get in your car, go home. Don't mess around with it. Flee from sexual immorality. One of the, the best examples of this, probably in all of Scripture, is in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 39. There's this guy named Joseph. Maybe you've heard of him. Unbelievable story of a faithful man. Um, his brothers had betrayed him. They had literally sold him into slavery. Uh, they were jealous of him, and out of their spite, they just said, we'll, we'll, we'll harm him. They sell him into slavery. He winds up in the house of this man named Potiphar, a very wealthy man of the land. And so in Potiphar's house, basically Joseph does a very, very good job. He's a faithful steward. And so he, he, he advances through Potiphar's house. Pretty soon he's in charge of everything. And the Bible has a couple descriptors going on about Joseph. It says that Joseph was very handsome in form and in feature. It basically means this. He was good to look at and he was sexy. It basically means he was hot. Joseph was hot. And there's this wife in the house of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, that is like the original desperate housewife. And in her cougar-like state, she decides she's going after Joseph. And so she begins to pursue Joseph. She begins to set traps for Joseph. She wants Joseph. And Joseph refuses over and over and over again. Genesis 39, verse 9, Joseph tells her, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you, 
because you are his wife, in case you forgot. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, he doesn't just say sin against you. He doesn't say sin against Potiphar only. He says, before God. It's bigger than us. It's, it's before God. How can I do that? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants was inside. So that's like the climactic moment. Dun, 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 dun. She called him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran, ran out of the house. He left his cloak in her hands and ran out of the house. He got out of there. He was fleeing from sexual immorality. Notice what it does not say. It doesn't say he was flattered. Oh, thanks for noticing. I've been working out. It doesn't say he flirted back. It doesn't say he let her advances get to him. He didn't stick around and try to rationalize. With all the stuff I've been through in my life, I deserve this. Besides Potiphar, he'll never find out. He could have made excuses. He could have tried to justify himself. But he had made a standard. He had put a guardrail in his life that said, I will not go there. I will not do that. And we have got to do the same thing. Because we too, like Joseph, we'll face certain situations, certain circumstances. And if we don't make a decision ahead of time how we will handle those things, we may fail. And some of you know what the pain of those kind of failures can be like. Some of you know what it's like to blow through guardrails sexually and wind up in places with broken hearts and shattered dreams and guilt and shame. And what we want to talk about is, is guardrails that will protect some of us from those areas. But we also want to talk about the grace and the compassion of our God who says you have never gone too far. You have never been gone too long. There is nothing that you can do that God can't forgive you, set you free, deliver you and heal you and make you whole again. That's what we're looking at today. He says, first of all, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Let's look at the, the second part of that verse. <clears throat> all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So this is what the Bible is saying, that's, that's whether the sin is one of sex outside of marriage, whether the sin is a struggle like that of, of pornography and the addiction and what that does to us, there's something uniquely dangerous about sex outside of God's intended design. Because sex is more than just a physical act, it's more than just if it feels good, do it with no consequences. One of my favorite pastors said it this way, there is no such thing as free sex. It always comes at a cost. With it, either you give your heart or you give away your soul. That is, you can have sex without giving love, but you can't have sex without giving a part of yourself. This comes from this idea 
of verse 16 in, in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one. God has designed, God has established this idea of marriage. Back in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, that, that's a quote from there where Adam and Eve come together and God says, you you will leave your father, you will leave your mother, you will come together and the two, you will be one flesh. And that's a, a picture, a portrait, and an explanation of what happens in the marriage bond. How God has designed sex to make us one, to unite us. And God says the physical act itself, even with a prostitute, even with the wrong context, and even in immorality, it's more than just a physical act. It involves who we are our soul, our emotions. And he doesn't say here that, that sin is worse than other sins. That He's not making a hierarchy or nothing like that. He's just saying it's unique. And he's just saying, you gotta watch out. And in every area of life where there are desires, every area of life where there's temptations, we need guardrails. But my argument would be in the area of sex, we need like reinforced steel. We need like concrete bunkers, fortified walls to keep us from those areas. So I'm going to be really, really practical for a few minutes and just give you some guardrails. And then we're going to come back to the theological. First of all is this. I have two different lists. If you are married, some guardrails that I would say pray about considering. If you are married, decide ahead of time. Decide now what types of media you will and will not allow in your house. What kinds of entertainment will you allow in your house? Decide ahead of time. In the area of, of television, what kind of shows are we just going to say ahead of time we won't watch? Maybe we block the channels. Maybe we don't even subscribe to that kind of stuff. We will not go there. We're not going to have it in our house. What, what kind of movies will you watch? Put a guardrail and say ahead of time, I know I can't watch those kind of movies. Make a decision ahead of time to say, I'm going to protect my heart. I'm going to protect my marriage, protect my family. I won't go there. What kind of guardrails will you put up in regards to the internet? Are you going to say, oh, no guardrails, just anything goes. doesn't hurt anybody. Really? Would you put a filter on your computer? Would you put a guardrail up? There's different websites. There's xxxchurch.com they have a, a, a filter to help you with your internet to keep you pure there's covenanteyes.com you could get that what kind of steps are you going to take to be proactive to guard you, your family from experiencing the pain that so many others do as a married couple sit down and have this conversation how will you relate to members of the opposite sex that aren't your spouse? What kind of boundaries are you going to put in your life as a husband to protect your wife in the way that you relate to other women? Wives, what kind of boundaries will you put on your life to protect you and your husband? Boundaries with you in relation to other men. Here's a few. You may not like them. That's okay. Don't travel alone with members of the opposite sex. That's a guardrail that can keep you from a lot of trouble. Whether it's riding in a car with somebody, whether it's I'm not going to go on business travels, just me and the person of the other sex. What are the guardrails that you're going to place in your life to keep you from falling victim? To trap so many other people 
stronger people than you maybe fell into. Don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. Don't go to dinner. Don't have coffee. Because what happens in those times? Almost every affair, almost every case of adultery has this, yeah, you know, we went and we grabbed coffee and it just clicked. Oh, we went, we went and we had lunch and sparks begin to fly. And I thought, ooh, I can't do that. But I sort of like it. Well, put a guardrail up that says, I won't even go there. For the safety of my marriage, for the sake of my children, I won't even go there. Three, don't hire cute members of the opposite sex because you want to help them. The resume comes in and you're like, oh, look at that picture. I don't really care about the qualifications. You've got the job. I need to help them. No, you don't. You're fooling yourself. Whether it's an administrative assistant or a lawn boy, don't hire members, cute members of the opposite sex because you want to help them. Just don't do it. Don't confide in or counsel married people of the opposite sex. Don't confide in or counsel. This is what happens when you go to coffee or lunch. When we were at coffee, I began to share the struggles with my wife, and she just understood me. Nobody's ever understood me. Now, obviously, guys don't say that. That would be the girl talking. But the woman's like, we went to lunch, and I was sharing how my husband's being mean, and man, this man across from me, he just understood me. Don't confide in or counsel with members of the opposite sex. When you begin to share your problems, they begin to listen. There is a bond. Watch out. Don't allow your relationship to go there. Another guardrail. When you feel your heart drifting to someone else, to a specific person, here's the guardrail. Tell somebody immediately. If you, if you find yourself thinking about this person who is not your spouse, if you find yourself driving by their house to happen to see if they're out or walking by their desk to just happen to see if they're around, there's this interest that's going, curiosity that's peaked. The guardrail is this, tell somebody then. Don't let it go any further. Stop it in its tracks and ask for somebody to help you. Single people, here's a few. Single people, apply the ones we just talked about. Apply the married people guardrails to people you relate to who are married. Apply the married people's guardrails to people you're with that are married. Apply those guardrails just as if you want your future spouse, your future husband or wife to be guarded. Apply those to yourself. A guardrail for singles is this. No sleepovers and no playing house. Eight-year-olds have sleepovers. Eight-year-olds play house. Here's what I want to say on that. We laugh, but the stories that we hear of how those things didn't work out far outnumber the stories we hear of those things that do work out. I, I know it may be easier. I know it may be more convenient, but that doesn't mean it's best. Is it a sin to have a sleepover? Well, no, probably not, but it's probably going to lead to sin pretty quickly. So you put a guardrail up that keeps you from going in that area. If the dating world that you are in, if in the dating world that you are in, singles, 
A date equals sex. A date equals hooking up. You need to get out of that dating world because there is something wrong with that world. Maybe it's you put up a guardrail and say, I'm taking some time off. I'm not looking. I'm not available. I don't have a ring on my finger, but I'm making myself unavailable for a season so I can allow God to heal my heart. We have this ministry here on Friday nights that is an amazing ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And like other recovery ministries, it has, it has these little ways of helping diagnose if you're at a place where you're uh, vulnerable to giving in to temptation. And there's an acronym that, that is used, uh, it's called HALT. It, it's, it's asking yourself, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? And if you're looking at yourself and evaluating yourself and you're saying, I, I'm hungry or I've got one of these things, I'm hungry or I'm angry or I'm lonely or I'm tired, you need to be careful, you need to be cautious because you're at a place where you could fall prey to temptation. If you're at a place where two of those factors are at work in your life, maybe you're lonely, you just feel all alone, but you're also angry, you're bitter, you need to watch out and be careful because you are at a dangerous place. If you have three or four of those things, you need to seek help. You need to go have somebody who can help you through this season of life. And the fact of the matter is, these guardrails are things that we choose ourselves. They're not thrust upon us. We choose ourselves for our protection, but they are not the answer alone. They're not the answer alone. I think scripture continues and it goes into a little more depth of here's, here's the reinforcement of, of guardrails. It's, it's about the right decisions, yes, in life, but there's something deeper. It's, a, it's an identity thing. It's understanding who we are. And so this part is, especially for those of you who call yourselves Christians, listen to this. And I pray that God will drive this deep into your heart. Um, it, just, just on the issue of guardrails, before I read that next verse, there's this amazing letter that I read, an, an essay from a girl named Crystal. She's a 10th grader from Arkansas. And she says she won't settle for anything but extreme intimacy. She will not settle for anything less than extreme intimacy. Okay, here's what she wrote. Remember, she's from Arkansas. Hey, my name is Crystal Michelle. I know I have an accent, but Arkansas has to have a worse accent than North Carolina. Um, just kidding. Here's what, here's what she says. I've made a pledge to God that I would not even kiss until the pastor says, and now you may kiss your bride. And some of you would say, weirdo. She understands that being in love isn't reason enough to become se sexually active. One of her favorite quotes spread her, to help spread her message of abstinence comes from Ann Landers. It goes like this. I met him. I like him. I liked him. I loved him. I loved him. I let him. I let him. I lost him. And as a 10th grader, she has a lot of maturity saying, here's some guardrails that she puts up. If a boy ever says to her this, real men are sexually active, she will say, so is my real dog. <laughs> if he says, you loved me, if you loved me, you'd let me, she'll say, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask. If he says, but I want to, she'll say, but I don't. If he says, everybody's doing it, she'll say, not true, I'm somebody, and I'm not doing it. If he asks her, have you ever done it, she'll respond with, have you ever made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ? That'll shut him down. <laughs> if he asks, don't you love me, she'll say, yeah, but I love God more. If he says, I won't get you pregnant, she'll say, that's right, because you aren't touching me. 
If he says, you won't let, if you won't let me, I'll find someone who will. And she'll say, it was nice knowing you. And if he says, but you owe me, she'll say, okay, I'll get you a keychain. Set standards in your life that no one else will so that you can experience what only God can give. Make decisions ahead of time not to do, not to go there in your life so that you can experience all that God has for us. Look at the next verse, and this is, this is the root, this is the core of, of what God is calling us to be. Verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. It's a rhetorical question. God is reminding the, the, the church in Corinth of this truth that he has taught them, that Jesus himself taught them. He says, don't you know, Christians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, living in you, whom God gave to you. You're, do you get that? Do you understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What it means is there is the power of God dwelling inside of us, the resources and the, the ability of God dwelling in us. If you're a Christian, the Bible says God has given you his spirit to lead, to direct, to guide, to deliver, to help you. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. For he lives with you and will be in you, the Holy Spirit of God. Don't you know your body's a temple? And we need the, the temple of God, our bodies to be holy useful to him it's it's a it's a high calling and it's not this degraded view of sex that lowers it it's this heightened view of sex this heightened view of our bodies heightened view of using our bodies to glorify God to honor God not just in what we say not just in what we believe in our head not just what we think in our heart and feel in our heart but with how we use our body to honor God to glorify God to, we can bring him glory by being holy in the way we live You say, yeah, but I've been struggling and I've made mistakes and I've failed. And I'm saying God can forgive. God can heal. God can make you whole again. Maybe you struggle with guilt and shame, condemnation. God can speak compassion and hope to you again. His Holy Spirit inside of you wants to lead you in that path. Maybe you say, but how do I walk that way? How do I go that way? Galatians 5, 16 says, so I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's this shift, this alteration in identity. It's not me saying, I'll try harder, I'll try harder, I'll do my best. It's saying, God in me, the Holy Spirit of God in me, His power from within will empower me. I'm not promising you you'll be perfect. I'm not saying you'll live without mistake, but I'm saying God's power is available. He is with you. He is in you. 
And not leaning on our own self, not following our own ways, but saying, God, I will follow your paths. I will walk as your spirit leads. That's how we, that's how we do this. And my prayer is that we would stop overestimating what we can do all by ourselves. I can handle it. I'm just, it's just a little struggle, but it's no problem. It's, I've got it under control. Men. I, I look at stuff I shouldn't look at, but I've got it under control. Really? Really? Do you think you can look at that stuff and it not begin to control you? Stop overestimating our own ability. That's my prayer. And stop underestimating God's ability to heal, God's ability to work. Stop underestimating what the Holy Spirit of God can do inside of us, empowering us, setting us free, delivering us, breaking the chains that have held some of us back for years. The rest of verse 19 says this. It talks about the Holy Spirit is... Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The last part of verse 19 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, verse 20 says. You are not your own. That if you're in here and you're a Christian and you say, I'm a follower of Christ, the the Bible says what that declaration meant, if you really meant it, was God take control. Jesus, you are the Lord of everything. And you said, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I now walk in a new way with you. And if you really meant that, what that, what that means is you're not your own anymore. Because you've identified with Jesus Christ on a cross, broken and guilty, not because of what he had done, but because of what you and I have done. And it says you're not your own anymore, but the good news in that is we're not our own. We're not by ourselves. We're not left to figure this out. We've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. We've got the promises of Scripture that God says, I will never leave you. I will never let you down. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. That price was his life, his very own life that he paid for us so that we could be free, so that we could be whole again. And it says this, therefore, honor God with your body. There's only two things this passage tells us to do. The first is flee from sexual immorality. Flee, put your running shoes on. Run away, turn from your sins. And the second one is this, honor God with your body. Glorify God. It's this, it's this idea of fleeing from sin and following after God. It's the idea of turning from your sin and running after God. That's what the scriptures are, are pleading with us to do. It's turning from our sins, turning from our brokenness, turning from our pain, and turning to God. My prayer today is that some of you would discover the freedom that can come in Christ. You, you feel trapped, you feel bound. I pray you would be set free. Some of you are are riddled with guilt and with shame for things you've done in the past. I pray that you would receive the grace of God and be forgiven. The Bible tells us this, if you will confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you confess and if you agree with God, what I'm doing is wrong, what I'm doing is sin, God, please forgive me. You can be free. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed and made whole. Some of you are here and, and, and you've, 
you've prayed that kind of prayer, you've made that kind of decision, but you're still not walking free. You're still not walking in the joy that God has. I pray that you would receive his forgiveness, that you would understand what it means to have your sin removed from you. The Bible says, cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered anymore, forgiven, forgiven. I pray that some of you would understand what it means to be saved. At the very essence, the root of some of your problems is not the struggle with sexuality. It's not the struggle with pornography. It's not that you had an affair. At the root, the problem is you need to be saved. You need to be forgiven of your sins. That's the real problem. Unbelief is the problem. Now, the unbelief has led to doing some bad things. But for some of you, the Bible says today could be a day of salvation. I pray that you would listen. I pray that God would speak to you and allow you to get in on the forgiveness and the grace that comes from knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of scripture because sometimes, God, we can look around at our culture. We can look around at the way we do things around here. And we can be led astray. God, I pray today that you would come and renew our minds. God, through the scripture that you would let us get perspective. Holy Spirit, that you would awaken in us new life. I pray today, God, that you would do a work of breaking chains there's some of us, we've not fled from immorality. We've ran right to it. And we're hooked. There's some of us that are one day away from an affair. There's some of us that we've crossed through this guardrail. We're getting ready to take a step right off the edge, God. God, would you come and speak and would you show us grace in this place today? God, I pray that men and women, both young and old today, would turn from their sin and they would turn to you, that they would leave their sin behind and run to you for healing, for forgiveness, that they would say, God, I'm sorry. It's as simple as that. And if their heart is true and meaning that and they turn from that, God, you will listen today. God, there's some who just need to respond out of brokenness. They're hurt. They're not walking in forgiveness. Although they've said, I'm sorry, God, they're still not receiving. Open them up, God, to hear you say, you're forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The ushers are coming and they're going to take up our offerings and our tithes for the morning. Uh, the band is going to sing this song and I want to ask you, stay seated, listen to the words of this song. I'm going to ask you more than just singing it, make the words of this song a prayer, a declaration of your heart to God. God is going to move powerfully in the next few minutes, so please don't move around if you don't have to. Listen to these words, meditate upon this song, and rejoice with God.